Allow me to open us in prayer. Merciful God, we thank you for this week. We thank you for the work of our hands, the ordinary work of each and every day of uh, feeding ourselves and our loved ones, of clothing our bodies, of taking shelter, of serving our neighbors. We thank you for our callings in the world as husbands and wives, uh, sons and daughters, uh, fathers and mothers, friends and laborers. Lord, we pray uh, that you would bless us this evening as we gather around your word and seek to be taught uh, by our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, and through your scriptures, um, how we can uh, serve you and love one another and uh, serve the world in which we live. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to uh, begin by reading this evening um, from 1 Corinthians 15. We are uh, looking tonight in particular at the last Adam, Jesus Christ as the second Adam, and how we think of the work that he has completed and how that uh, informs us and instructs us as a church in our calling in the world uh, today. So I'm going to start reading um, really in verse 42, but just to give a sense uh, in verse, chapter 15, verse 35, Paul is talking, beginning, actually the whole chapter, but beginning in verse uh, 35, he's talking about the character, the nature of the resurrection. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So the analogy here is is how we shall compare the body of this life with the body of the world to come, uh, the new creation. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same. So then skipping down to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And one of the key conclusions here in the next section, if you look at the divisions in our Bible, but I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Uh, thus far, the reading of God's word and what we what we want to see and, and begin to consider uh, today is uh, how we serve and how we partake 
of this heavenly spiritual kingdom today. So going back, this is our third installment in this series, uh, working our way roughly through David Van Drunen's book, though we're uh, very uh, free and loose to take some detours as we move along. Um, We looked first on the 19th of January at um, different versions of Christ and culture. How does the church relate to the world in which uh, we live? And Van Drunen in particular is concerned about those visions which um, have a uh, neo-Calvinist, it's called neo-Kyperian view of Christian transformationalism and a cultural transformationalism. In other words, this culture is being through our labors, we are building and bringing the kingdom of God here and now, step by step, laying brick by brick. Um, And so that was the broad general introduction of what the book is going to be discussing in our series. And then last two weeks ago, uh, Luke, uh, while I was um, in the wilds of Idaho, uh, didn't see any bear, but I saw some moose moose prints in the snow. So they were big. Um, But two weeks ago, he looked at uh, the fall. He looked at the uh, what we call the creation mandate, uh, the first Adam. And then what we're going to look at today is the last Adam. And this is sort of the broad uh, theological backdrop and and context for what the rest of our series is going to be. How we live as pilgrims and exiles in the world. Um, Remember that that the Neo-Kyperian view often invokes creation, fall, redemption. And this is not a bad summary of the big picture of scripture. But it does uh, lack a little bit of precision and detail. It lends itself to potential confusion. And so that's what we're trying to tease out a little bit more uh, clarity on. Uh, I really want to uh, talk about one big idea tonight. And and the second one is is a little bit maybe of a review of of Luke's material two weeks ago. But the first big idea I want to talk tonight is that Christ, as the second Adam, has attained everything, has accomplished everything. Everything that was intended for the first Adam. I want us to develop uh, this idea. Of, let me read a quote here. Uh, the redemptive accomplishment of the second Adam illuminates for us the design of the program originally assigned to the first Adam. There is nothing that the first Adam was called uh, to do that the second Adam has failed to do. And indeed, he has uh, completed it and perfected it. So that's the first uh, big idea I want to get at here. And um, you may have grown up in the Reformed Church. I did not. Uh, But I still recall when I was at seminary um, studying some of this material, uh, studying first Adam, second Adam, the big picture of Scripture. And it clicked in my brain for the first time that... Everything that Christ has accomplished was what was intended for Adam to accomplish. I think oftentimes uh, in the broader evangelical background of American Christianity, we think, well, Jesus might have saved us from our sins. He might have dealt with all the spiritual stuff. But there's all this other worldly creation, cultural work that we're supposed to be doing. And that those are sort of two different dichotomous realms that don't really intersect that much. Um, But this really kind of went on like a light bulb in my head. That that there was a goal. Adam wasn't just to stay in the garden. Adam had a calling as a priest and a king. He had a royal calling and he had a priestly calling. He was to tend and keep the garden. And Luke talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? The garden is is an archetype of the temple. It was God's dwelling place on earth. 
And so when the temple, the sanctuary is given to Israel, it is calling us back to the garden as that holy place where God dwells with his people. Well, Adam was called to dwell in that garden, protect and keep it, drive the serpent out. And the, the cultural piece, the creation mandate, was as he multiplied and, and, and grew and developed his family line, he was to build the city of God. And ultimately, after that trial, there was the promise of life. That's what the tree of life uh, held forth. So um, there was something, and I think Luke uh, dropped this quote. I listened to his, his audio. There's this idea that there was an eschatological goal to creation. Before there was ever a need to redeem us and deliver us from our sin. Before sin was in the world. That's what the first Adam was supposed to accomplish. And he was supposed to do it by uh, sustaining that trial in the garden, that probationary period. Um, So Van Drunen in this chapter, the third chapter of the book, looks at three things about the second Adam. First, he looks at the work of Christ. Then he looks at how Christ's work comes as a benefit to God's people. And then third and finally, uh, he looks at the climax of Christ's work, the second coming of Christ. So before I jump into the work of Christ... Any questions or comments where we're going tonight, what what, uh, Luke talked about two weeks ago? Okay, we're still on the same page. So, first of all, the work of Christ. Um, I'm going to move through this material pretty quickly so we can have uh, some more uh, conversation. But I know Luke talked a little bit last week about uh, Romans chapter 5, right? Romans chapter 5 is the other place in the New Testament where there is this discussion of the first Adam and the second Adam, right? And what we see there is this parallel between one act of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, as opposed to one trespass, right? Uh, One man's obedience versus one man's disobedience. So there's the first Adam and the second Adam in parallel. And so uh, the second Adam accomplishes, fulfills everything that the first Adam was intended to do. Again, we have a whole career of Adam's life and all of fallen creation following after him. But Christ's redemptive work parallels that garden trial, that probation of, um, of Adam. That one sin is reversed through Jesus' uh, faithfulness. And that's uh, briefly uh, the goal of, of Romans 5, setting up this idea that our justification is completely fulfilled. Jesus doesn't take us back to the garden. D- Jesus in his uh, cleansing blood, doesn't merely purify us of our sin. He gives us the righteousness of a fully obedient child of Adam. Um, The next passage I want to look at, I've already read from 1 Corinthians 15. And again, the story here is the resurrection of the dead. He's already introduced in verse 20. I didn't read this part, but he's, he's already introduced the first Adam, uh, second Adam uh, parallel in verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that's very important. And the importance of calling Christ the first fruits is that we are the rest of the harvest, right? Christ's resurrection is a guarantee and assurance of our resurrection. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Uh, 
Christ has accomplished that goal of creation for all of us. The new heavens and the new earth have been entered by our flesh. Um, one of the things that we don't often think about, and it's a little bit speculative, because this is the road not taken, right? <laughs> what if Adam had been faithful? What is the picture there? We don't have it recorded in Scripture because it didn't occur, but we can infer it because the second Adam was faithful where he was not. The idea is that Adam's faithfulness would have resulted, uh, there would not have been a fallen humanity, obviously, but there would have been a kingdom of God that covered the whole earth and that brought all of his glory, reflected all of his glory through all creation, and there would have been a consummate state. Adam would have ushered in a confirmation of righteousness. That is the symbolism of the tree of life there, which man can't have access to once he is a sinner. He can't attain the tree of life because of his sin. That tree of life is the same tree of life growing in Revelation 21, right? But Christ has access to that tree. Christ has entered uh, that consummate state, confirmed us in righteousness, and uh, that is our blessing. He has accomplished the goal of creation. Um, he must reign, um, Romans, or 1 Corinthians 15 says. And then the, the portion I already read, uh, this very famous uh, passage that really develops this parallel between Adam and Christ. Uh, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, verse 45, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, Jesus isn't just... Um, um, the first obedient one, and we're going to follow in his footsteps, right? Jesus is obedient on our behalf. That's why he does what Adam never could do. Adam lived, but wasn't able to give life to the whole race that he was the federal head of. But Christ has, through his obedience in the probationary trial, attained this status of life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And uh, this important conclusion, as I already drew our attention to, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I think one of uh, the lessons, and we're going to work back around maybe to some material that Luke covered a few weeks ago, is uh, when we hear verse 50, we probably think of, of our bodies. My body's perishable. Um, when you get to be 50 years old, that'll take on a whole new meaning for you. Or maybe when you, uh, if you're a little bit younger, uh, that 50 might seem too far away. Uh, Peter, when you have a child, right, all of a sudden, like, you realize, like, oh, I don't have the energy I used to have when I wasn't waking up in all hours. As you graduate through life stages, we realize the, the perishableness of our flesh. Now, remember, here's the important thing. The flesh and blood, it, it's not referring to how God created us. We weren't created perishable. That's our fallen, our fallen existence in this world. The perishability of you know the aches and pains I feel, or uh, the difficulty of childbirth. Right? That's the cursed and fallen world we live in. And so I think one of the things that that First Corinthians fifteen teaches us is there is this. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? There is, is a vast divide, really, between our cultural labors here and now and the new creation. There's a vast divide between the old creation and the new creation. 
And I think when we start to think of this transformationalist vision, when we get drawn into thinking like we're gradually building our way up to the new creation, right? We're, we're laying the foundation stones of the kingdom of God here on earth right now. We minimize this divide between the perishable and the imperishable. And the scriptures warn us that at the fall, our creational labors, whether it's family, work, harvesting, agriculture, Food, shelter is, is, is darkly cursed. It takes on a deep, cursed character. And so this is not a contrast between material and immaterial. It's not like we have material bodies and in heaven we won't. We'll have material bodies both now and in glory. But it's a contrast uh, about the new birth of the Holy Spirit that Christ has attained. Um, so that's one of the things I really want to put a pin in here in 1 Corinthians 15. The heavenly inheritance, the new creation, cannot be inherited by the perishable flesh. Likewise, our perishable endeavors in this world aren't just going to pour over to the new creation. It is so much more mind-blowing than we can imagine. Uh, glorious beyond our imagining. So there will be uh, this, this cataclysmic transformation. Peter talks about all things being burned by fire. Right, And so we will enter into a new heavens and a new earth. Um, and and the, real, the real connection point between the old, heaven, the old creation and the new creation is the church of the living God. It's the image of God in this world. You and I who are living stones in the temple that will be that heavenly temple city. Um, he also talks, and to, to make this point about the work of the second Adam, about Hebrews chapter 2. And you may not thought of this. He doesn't use the language of the second Adam in Hebrews chapter 2. Um, but he talks about um, a parallel between man as created. And, and really Hebrews is quoting uh, Psalm 8. But in verse uh, 5 uh, of chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So this was, uh, this is uh, Rome or Hebrews chapter 2, quoting Psalm 8, describing how man was created. Everything in subjection under our feet. And we know this is not the way the world goes, right? This gets back to the point. We don't live in this world. We live in a perishable uh, world. We don't see anything like this. But what does Hebrews say? It goes on. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We don't see Jesus' glorious dominion over all this created order, this created order that's going to be burned up. But we do know that he is crowned with glory and honor. We see Jesus who, through his death, has accomplished everything that first Adam was intended to accomplish. Uh, Van Drunen points out four things. Jesus was lower than the angels for a little while. He, 
in his humiliation, took on Adam's uh, uh, creation, uh, Adam's position in his incarnation. He suffered death. That is the perfect obedience of Christ on the cross, which Hebrews points to again and again and again. And he's crowned with glory and honor. He is the royal king. He is the royal image of God that Adam was called to be in creation. And he has done this on our behalf. He is uh, going to uh, uh, bring us into glory. He has tasted death for everyone. And these themes continue throughout Hebrews. He conquered Satan. He destroyed the one who had the power of death. He is without sin. He is a perfect high priest. He is the imperishable high priest by the character of his life. And he has done in the heavenly sanctuary, the true temple and tabernacle of God, what Adam failed to do in the garden, in that earthly sanctuary and temple. So the New Testament gives us this picture that Christ has completed the work of Adam. And he has uh, been crowned and in his glorification has all these things. Now, we live in the age of the already and the not yet, right? This doesn't yet answer the question of how then shall we live in our age. This is the, the theoretical background, if you will. But it's so very important um, that we understand what uh, Christ has done. Um, so that's, that's the first part of Van Drunen's case here. He's going to move on to the benefits, which is not, doesn't take as long to discuss. But any questions here? Any doubts? Um, I'm trying to paint a, a little bit of a picture that I know when I first heard it was very different. And maybe you all have more experience with it. No? We are... Um, what are the benefits here? How, how do we experience Christ's victory over sin and death in the grave. Um, we are treated as though we have completed Adam's work. That's the important thing. We have been buried with Christ and raised with him. Death no longer has power over us. That curse that Adam received as a result of his sin and that put its uh, force, its, its power over all creation does not any longer bind us. Uh, We are declared righteous, not just forgiven. And that is uh, the the verdict of those who have passed through the trial, through the probation. We aren't put back in the garden. We have, and Hebrews talks about this in particular, we have access to the world to come. Hebrews paints this picture of that heavenly tabernacle. Our worship is going to the mountain of God, right? Right? Um, I've already mentioned 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Colossians says, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. That is not what we experience day by day. <laughs> that is what we know through the eyes of faith. Um, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. We shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. That's not something you say about someone before they've taken the test or passed, um, you know, uh, the probation. That is something that is said of us as those who have completed our work. Christ has completed it for us. Uh, Christ is, in the language of Hebrews, our forerunner, our pioneer. He goes before us. He attains our Sabbath rest. We draw near with confidence. Um, In the garden, when Adam was cast out, those cherubim are placed there, right? With the flaming sword. There is no access. For us, that access 
has been restored. And so we have now frequently uh, this idea of the city of the living God, Hebrews 12. We have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek and long for that heavenly uh, city. This is very powerful in Colossians and Philippians. Uh, Our life and citizenship is in heaven. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm not sure how you um, understand being hidden with Christ in God. Um, That's kind of a... um, uh, a subtle metaphor, right? What does it mean to be hidden with Christ and God? Any guesses? He can't see your sin. He can't see your sin. Yeah, in that sense where it, 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 it does perhaps pick up in this imagery of this, especially with Christ, right? We're, we're covered by Christ. We're, we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. So God can't see our, our sin. We're, our sin is hidden from God. Emily? Yeah, that's a great verse because we will appear with him in glory when he appears. But now he's hidden. So what does that mean about us? Our glory is hidden. It's not anything we see today. I say, oh, I like, you know. I really conquered sin last week, man. It was awesome. I just had the victorious Christian life and I prayed every morning for 45 minutes, you know, read my Bible and I was an awesome dad, you know, awesome husband. Maybe I I built this wonderful, you know, ministry that's, you know, we're going to reduce the number of beheadings in the District of Columbia. That's our goal, right? Bringing the kingdom of God here on earth. I'm sorry. Sorry for the audio there. We just heard that tragically there was a beheading in the District of Columbia. No, so it's an amazing thing. It's actually, a, he's actually saying our life, everything that Christ has given to us is still hidden from us. We don't see it. It's not tangible. Remember, faith is not sight. And so I think we, we think of this in sort of glorious ways and it is glorious. But it's this idea that you, poor Christian in a dungeon... You, poor Christian, perhaps oppressed, struggling, suffering, dying. You are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And so it's this idea that uh, of the suffering God. It's the suffering glory. Christ's glory is in us. Um, Philippians 3, again, a similar vein. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This whole idea of... What does Christian sanctification look like? What does the kingdom of God look like in our lives? Um, It's setting our minds on heaven. It's longing for heaven. It's understanding that what God is really uh, accomplishing in us is only going to be visible in us, in the world, when the new heavens and the new earth comes. And this is that verse in Philippians 3.19 where Paul talks about our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, Paul's talking in personal sense. But, but think not all, uh, in terms of, of in your personal life, your personal sanctification. But think on the corporate sense. Think, think of the church. In what sense, how does the church in its ministry, how do Christians in the world today image, portray to the world the coming kingdom of God? Is it visible or is it invisible? <laughs> is it in power or is it in weakness? Is it, is it in, in victory over sin, want, starvation, suffering, death? Or is it in the promise, the hope, the assurance of those things in Christ? And I think if we see that, that what the New Testament is doing is saying, your glory is hidden, it is coming. Um, now, the things we're building in this cultural world, our Christian ministry, is not our glory. It's not that which is going to be glorious. We are still called to engage in cultural labors. That's what the whole second half of this book is, is about. But here we're setting forward this theological framework, which really uh, orients us to put our life, our hope, our everything in heaven. It's the hiddenness of the kingdom of God uh, today. And this really brings me up to my last point, And then we'll have a little bit of a conversation tonight. Uh, the second coming. What is going on at the second coming? Revelation uh, 21, uh, 1. Uh, we see um, the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea, the sea represents for us in this context uh, chaos and opposition and threat and fear. The sea was no more. So the, the old earth, the first heaven, the first earth passes away. First um, Peter 3, 7, he talks about uh, this world being stored up for fire. And the world is full of good things. God created it. He loves us. This is not a world-denying vision. Marriage, work, family. But these are temporary goods. These are temporary uh, goods. Um, even marriage. And I want to maybe have a little bit of a conversation about that at, at the end tonight. And how that ties into this first Adam, second Adam um, understanding. Even marriage, Jesus says, right? They will never give nor be given in heaven in marriage. Um, it's hard for us not to uh, imagine some of these things that we uh, take as so central to our identity here on earth as carrying over into glory. Merely because it's hard for us to imagine what glory has in store for us. Um, the world in Revelation, in Revelation 18, is portrayed akin to Babylon. It is Babylon that is being judged. And this is what really sets us up for the second part of this book, right? The imagery of Babylon in the book of Revelation. It is a complete cataclysm, right? The mountains are falling. Everything's destroyed. The earth is shaken, right? Hebrews talks about that which cannot be shaken versus that which is shaken. And the image for that which is going to be destroyed is Babylon. And God's people in exile had a lot of experience in Babylon, Right? We should turn to the book of Daniel. We should turn to the exile theme. And then even before that, Peter also takes up the idea of sojourners. We should turn to Abraham and the patriarchs. Right? Uh, the question, one of the big questions here is, how do we understand Israel 
which was a type and shadow of this new heavenly reality. But it was a temporary type and shadow. It was not built to last. It was built to point uh, to Christ. So the Christian life is one of waiting and anticipation as exiles and sojourners. This idea of those who are a diaspora scattered across the earth. Um, So, any questions? Christ is the second Adam. How is this different from the the pattern, which you may or may not have heard or be familiar with in different contexts, of creation, fall, redemption? How does this first Adam, second Adam, is that a hand, Zane? Good. I like to see your hand, Zane. Yeah, and and what you often hear when they talk about the New Testament eschatology is this idea of already and not yet, right? You have all these blessings in Christ, but you don't have them fulfilled yet. You don't have them in a consummate fashion. And, And that's a lot more tension than we're used to enjoying in the world. Um Josh's S22 Ultra. That's like the, if, if it's, I feel like I'm on, um, well, I don't want to date myself, but it's like the big hook on stage, you know, pulling you off stage. We're going to do a test. So, so it sets up, I think, uh, it's a little bit more clarity that we live in tension with our world. And it, it humbles us in terms of our expectations for the world in which we live. Um, one of the things that I did want to say a few more words about, and it, it probably came up a little bit last week, but it's, it's not an entirely um, a common distinction that people are, are comfortable with or understand a lot. But I, or two weeks ago, I think Luke talked a little bit about cult and culture. Cult and culture. Did this come up? I see a little head nod. Maybe it's two weeks. It's a long time. Um, cult and culture... It is another way for us to think about this in this in-between time that you talk about. And there's this sense in which if we think of culture as all of our engagements in the world. Um, another way to think of cult and culture is to think of the first Adam, right? He was uh, to be a, a royal king. He was to have dominion over the whole earth. He was to uh, be fruitful, multiply. Uh, it was a, a theocratic a monarchy. Adam was going to reign over an entire nation, a holy nation of priests. Um, and that cultural endeavor, and, and this really is the primary cultural endeavor. I know we have some married persons here and some single persons here. And I always want to navigate a little bit of attention, right? Man is created in a marital unit. <laughs> the creation call is to being fruitful and multiplying. Now, in the church, we have people who are single, who are called to singleness, who are single for a time. We have people that are married. Uh, That's the real world we live in. That's kind of another topic. But we shouldn't ignore the fact that man's calling, his cultural calling, is to fill the earth with the kingdom of God. And he was to be a priest king. Uh, So he has this priestly duty to guard and keep the garden. And he has this cultural calling as well. And those two, before the fall, 
are united. They're integrated. All cultural activity is religious. And in a fallen world, it still is. This is why um, no matter what uh, state you have, whatever government you have, it always makes these claims, right, to being established by the gods. And if you're in the post-enlightenment world, it makes other theological claims about the very nature of reality and utopia, right, and what, what kind of promises it gives. So cult and culture are distinct. They're both religious and they're both present in the garden. Um, but with the fall... They are torn apart. And, and the question is, how are they torn apart? Why are they torn apart? Well, they're torn apart because of the curse. Right? The cultural activity of Adam doesn't end. Because of, of the promise of a Savior, the promise of a Redeemer. And I'm going to backtrack a little bit and go back to, to Luke's presentation last week. But there's this promise of a redeemer, right? In Genesis 3.15. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So there's this promise of the one who will bruise the serpent's head and uh, who will crush his head and he will bruise his heel. But, but then he, he reaffirms, given that promise of a coming savior, that the woman and the man are going to continue to be fruitful. It's going to be through much pain and suffering, right? Their blessed marital union is now going to be full of conflict. Adam's work, which was originally portrayed as tending a garden, is now going to come uh, through thorns and thistles. And uh, there will be much sweat. He will still be a gardener, but he will be a failed gardener. (laughs) And one of the things that uh, my seminary professor pointed out is that 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 consummation promise, that promise of consummation, which is held forth both in the tree of life and in the Sabbath, right? It's not reestablished here in Genesis 3 in the fallen world. Creational activity no longer leads to consummation. Adam could have formed and they could have had babies. And if they would have done it faithfully, they would have brought in the new creation. That was his calling. To attain everything for us that Christ has attained for us. But once he failed, we see this rupture. And it's portrayed for us by Adam being driven from the garden in the flaming sword. Right, The tree of life is no longer accessed through the cultural endeavors of man. And that curse stains us till, still now, even in this already and not yet time. But then how, how does the promise... Of consummation. How is the promise of life still held forth? Through the priestly work. Through the coming Messiah. And so this enmity. Between the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent. Is the enmity of those elect. Who are called to saving faith. Out of a fallen world. And their battle. uh, With the serpent. That is uh, sort of. Where we get this conflict, as it were, between cult and culture. Now, culture continues to make religious aspirations. That's the Tower of Babel, right? That's Lamech. I'm going to curse the one. I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to be the king. But the faithful line waits for their savior, and they suffer. Noah gets down to eight, right, in the ark, and they come through that conflict. And that's what First Peter compares the church to. We're like Noah in that stinky ark. So there is 
uh, this enmity. And, uh, and cult and culture are no longer integrated. There is, is a tension here. So this becomes, in the New Testament context, and where we're going to go in the coming weeks, as pilgrims and strangers, we serve God and our neighbor in this world through the inbreaking of that new creation in the church, in the cult, in our worship of God, in our life together. And so um, we, we still have... Our ordinary cultural callings in the world, those preserve the order out of which God is redeeming and saving a precious uh, race. This dawned on me. I'm, um, I'm kind of cheating. I've never read through the Bible in a year, I confess. I'm a bad pastor. Um, some of our members have, I know. And I've heard it's a wonderful experience. So I'm trying to do it this year. But I'm kind of cheating because I'm listening to the audio Bible as well. Um, so, you know, a little bit of each. But um, I was listening through Numbers. And it was talking about the feasts and the festivals. And you get the same language in Leviticus 23. About when you gather for worship, you shall do no ordinary work. It shall be a festival. I forget what the expression is. A holy day. So it's this idea of holy and ordinary. Profane and common. That's what the Sabbath is for us today. That's what the Lord's Day is for us. That's what worship is for us today. But... This interesting idea, you must stop your ordinary work. What's ordinary work? It's the common cultural activity that you engage in, the same farming as pagan farmers, right? But you understand that it has and serves now a different purpose through your participation in the cult of the living God, the worship of the living God. So, um, any questions there about cult, culture? Yes, Emmeline. Confusion is the path to knowledge. So that's the Are we saying that man's mandate is actually changed after the fall, or simply that we no longer fulfill it and Christ fulfills it on our behalf? In our salvation or our religion? I think yes and no. Um, I'm, I want to keep you confused. Um, I, I think that um, the 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 importance, if you think sort of in Aristotelian fashion, like the efficient cause or the final cause of something, right? If you have an act and a reason and intent and a goal for doing something, right? Um, if you're doing this to accomplish this, and, and that goal changes. If you change the final cause of something, you change the thing. So farming is different before the fall and after the fall. It gets a lot harder. The whole world is upended. But I would say even apart from that, there's a sense where you plant the seed, it grows, you harvest it, right? You could say it's the same activity, but Adam was to farm in such a way that that it had a different goal. It was all perfectly oriented to his creator God, and it was reflecting God's glory. The, the, The cult and culture were unified in that priestly, kingly act. And in a fallen world, farming changes... And the purpose of farming changes. Um, childbearing changes. And the purpose of childbearing may change some. Um, so it's complicated. I don't think it's that simple. And, and this is actually a wrinkle that I just reread in some of my old seminary notes today. Uh, this idea we talk. One of the confusing points here. And it's an important distinction. So you've, you're actually you're putting your finger on something very important. What is the status of the cultural mandate today? 
We all talk about the cultural mandate, right? Be fruitful and multiply, given to Adam. That's the prelapsarian cultural mandate. And uh, reconstruction uh, theonomic visions in the reformed world have often taken that cultural mandate and said, it's not changed. We just do it today. And in a post-millennial sense, we bring the kingdom of God by fulfilling the cultural mandate. And so I think one of their failures is to acknowledge how this has been restructured in a post-lapsarian world, in the post-lapsarian setting. That's so much clearer. Does that help? Yes. But it is a very... Um, I, don't, I never want to make the Bible like a mystery religion. Or, but there are some precise distinctions there. And I think this idea that I had never really thought about before, right... Um, If you think of the creation mandate as be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1, right? And then Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are to be fruitful and multiply in a fallen way. But now there's no Sabbath. There's no consummation. And then Genesis 9, after the flood, there's the Noah covenant. And God says, I'm never going to destroy the earth again by water as long as it lasts. It's not a permanent covenant. It's temporary. And there's no Sabbath. There's no consummation. Man was created for Sabbath. That eschatology, that goal of the new creation was built in to the first creation. And the curse broke that (laughs) by God's design, broke it. And he said, I'm going to I'm going to bring that consummation about through the through the second Adam, through the risen Christ. So I think that that. That distinction is very helpful for me in seeing that there is a different plan in Scripture. Caden? Okay. Caden? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, you know, uh, David Van Drunen addresses that. He says, you know, well, you can't say that Christ fulfilled the cultural mandate. Like, you know, he didn't have a lot of babies. He wasn't fruitful and multiply. You know, he didn't fill the earth with all of his children. Well, I I think that's where, you know, he, um, the parallel between the second Adam and the first Adam. And this is where it's so important to have a firm grasp on the idea that the, the first Adam's Work, the, the one, I mean, he sinned a lot of times, right? But Romans 5 says, one trespass, one act of obedience. It was the probationary environment. So the first Adam, had he sustained that probationary environment, would have been confirmed in righteousness and continued on that path of the creation mandate. Um, you know, Augustine's um, rubric for... Um, you know, um, before the fall, Adam was able to sin and able not to sin. He had that kind of freedom. We don't have that freedom, right? He had a different kind of freedom than we do. We're only able to sin <laughs> and quite good at it. So, but Adam had that freedom. And then after the fall, he's, um, he's not able to not sin. He loses the ability to not sin. It all sounds better in Latin, but I'm trying to 
See, be a little humble. And, you know, it's late and my Latin's rusty. In Christ, in redemption, we are able not to sin and to sin in this in-between time. We have the righteousness of faith and, and true obedience. But in glory, we will not be able to sin. Not be able to sin in glory. We will be confirmed in righteousness. Christ has accomplished that for us through sustaining the probation. Did he do everything uh, that would have been subsequent? Not, in fact, on earth during his incarnate time. But he will, through adoption, right, build a family through the new birth. He will build a race. And he is uh, constructing this holy temple. We are the stones. He's building that holy temple that Adam would have accomplished. So I think the key is to say Christ accomplished everything in the cultural mandate. Fruitful and multiply um, by sustaining the, um, the trial. The 40 days in the wilderness. His life on earth. The cross. His act of obedience has canceled out the act of disobedience. And we can say... You know, the promises that came to Abraham that in that seed there is a multitude of offspring and all the nations of the earth are blessed. So those promises of that holy seed, as Paul says, and the seed was Christ, right? Genesis, the seed tracks from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12, 15, 22, 17. So that seed is Christ. He's the one that crushes the serpent head. So Adam could have, you know, stomped him right there. But he failed. But that's a good question. And now, again, this leaves as the open-ended question. I think one fear with this view is, well, then why does anything we do matter? Right? If Christ has done it all, why does anything we do matter? And um, I don't really have the answer. I mean, I have answers to that question. But I'm not, I don't want to talk about that tonight. Because there's a big answer, right? It does matter. We know it matters. We're called to live in this world. We're, we're called, um, and, and we do go back to creation. We go back to our calling as sons and daughters of Adam to live that out. Um, <laughs> sons and daughters of Adam. He's very Josh has a question. Yes, uh, you have some feedback, Mr. Uh, He can make a rock so big that you can't lift it. <laughs> All right, look at that. Josh's S22 Ultra. So that's where our special guests are going to appear someday. <laughs> so I think we go back to the creation mandate. We understand. Um, but we, we take it up, um, and, and this leads, I would say, to the perspective of Paul in Romans 8, uh, the Peter epistles, right? We groan. Like, we groan in our calling in this world. And we bear witness, and we confess, and yet we pray confidently. We have access. We have hope. And we ultimately uh, don't know, right? We, we are on mission, even as Christ was on mission to bring uh, the world to know the glory of the kingdom of God. You know, so I, I think one of the big changes here is 
that the life of God's people in uh, the kingdom of God. And, and this is going to be very rough. I'm doing this on the fly. It's always dangerous, right? But the kingdom of God is a huge discussion, right? Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? I'm doing kingdom work. Uh, when I was in college, uh, uh, Bart Campolo, who's now a pagan, like I went and did summer ministry with Bart Campolo. I mean, good thing I'm not now a pagan, right? I just follow the ark. But he had this, this uh, summer ministry called Kingdom Works. I was doing kingdom work and I was, you know, living with, you know, massive amounts of gunfire in the inner city of Philadelphia. It was a great experience. Um, I'd be happy to tell you some stories sometime. But we have this expansive vision of the kingdom, right? And I think one of the things that this uh, first Adam, second Adam cult culture distinction does for us is it um, teaches us that God's kingdom is much more closely, not absolutely, but much more closely correlated with the church. It's much more like we have an infinite amount of priestly and kingly work to do. And our local communions of faith and worship and witness in the world. And the kingdom of God, where you can truly turn the other cheek, where no one ever goes hungry, that's not out on the streets of all the cities, you know, the poor you'll always have with you. But in the church, what happens? You shouldn't have any poor people in the church. Right? Because all who have ability come and give, if anyone's hungry or thirsty. So the new creation breaks in, in the church. Not just on Sunday mornings, but that's, that's the epicenter, right? That's the locus, that's ground zero. And uh, Gerhardus Voss, who was a reformed uh, theologian, early part of the last 20th century, he talks about this as a, as a peninsula jutting out into the ocean. So if you think of like heaven jutting out into earth, it's like the land is starting to make an incursion. The spirit's work is beginning to be seen and felt. In a tangible way. Among the people of God in the world. And that's kingdom work. And it might be. You know. Giving out bulletins on Sunday morning. Or visiting a shut in. Or you know. Doing some hard local work. Loving neighbors in the church. It doesn't mean we're without mission to the world. Doesn't mean we don't love our neighbors. Doesn't mean we don't have day jobs. We don't have ordinary work in the world. That we then set aside when we come to do our cultic activity. But it's a different way of thinking about how the kingdom of God is growing and expanding and progressing in the world today. And I think we're so accustomed in America to think of the whole freaking nation as the city shining on the hill, right? Shining city on a hill, one of those things. We are so accustomed to thinking of the whole world being the new creation gradually coming in, in this sort of post-millennial vision. So... Um, I come back, hopefully full circle here, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty. The perishable can't inherit the imperishable. The eternal kingdom of God is, not, is hidden. It's hidden in Christ. It's not something we see. It's not what, what's the visible part of what we're seeing here today. I mean, you could take as an example, you know, in our world, as a, you know, on 15 years of our anniversary, we've worshipped in three different church buildings, right? Church buildings crumble, <laughs> That's a this-worldly appearance of a, a, a cultural artifact 
of believers worshiping in the world is church buildings. And even this beautiful one, which we're so grateful to use, will crumble and fall. Churches as institutions have often crumbled and fallen, though we know that the true church continues to exist. Um, But one of the hard lessons learned through a number of years in our former home in Grace Reformed Church is looking at a handful, five, six, seventeen, eighty-year-old folks, and they totally lost the gospel. Uh, the church had totally vanished. Their lampstand had been taken away, and they were so invested in the fact that Teddy Roosevelt used to worship in their building. They were invested in the visible. Think about them. They were they were doing some cutting-edge ministry. They had the president of the United States as a communion member of a reformed church over there on Fifteenth Street. That's like kingdom come. It's gone. It's dust. Well, let's um, let's pray and then sing together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us uh, hearts and minds that uh, are set on heaven and your glory. Uh, we cling to the the blessings you've given us in this world, though. We are to use them, um, not as an end, but as a way to behold your coming glory, your greater glory. And we know that eye is not seen, ear is not heard. What those songs will be like, what those heavenly choirs will sing, the joy, uh, the elation, the ecstasy that we will have in Christ at his appearing. And to have our our hidden glory revealed at that time. Oh Lord, come quickly. We long for it here on earth. We long for the new heavens and the new earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.